Hello and welcome to episode number 187 of Turkey Book Talk. We're just over two weeks on from the terrible earthquakes that hit southern Turkey and northwest Syria. First up, all my thoughts are with everyone affected by those earthquakes. Personally, I'm still in some shock about what's happened, as I think is the case for many here. I'm in Istanbul and I don't have any direct family connections to the affected areas, but I know people and friends who do, who've lost loved ones. The sheer scale of the loss of life and the damage, the horror of what has happened is still only just emerging really. We postponed last week's episode for obvious reasons, but this week we're going to talk about the earthquakes and their aftermath, the social, economic and political aftershocks of what happened and of what's still happening. And I can't think of anyone better to do that with than Selim Koru. He is an analyst at the Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey and a fellow at the US-based Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's a brilliant and original observer of Turkey, and he's also got a very good substack that I heartily recommend covering various aspects of Turkish politics, contemporary society and culture, and how those two latter things filter in to various political trends in the country today. In this conversation, we talk about the response of the state and society to the devastating earthquakes, comparisons with Turkey's previous major earthquake in the Marmara region in 1999, and the potentially seismic political effects, both domestically and in foreign policy. I'm not going to be as tasteless as to appeal for support on Patreon this week. If you want to donate, please consider some of the relief groups working in the field to support communities affected by the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. If you go to turkeybooktalk.com, I added links there in the previous post to some of the trusted organizations who need support and are going to continue needing support in the weeks and months ahead. Anything that you can give would be welcome. So let's move on to our conversation with Selim Koru. I started by asking him, first of all, for his personal reflections. How difficult emotionally has it been to experience and observe events of the last couple of weeks? I was looking over my notes today from the past week. I do this thing where I, uh, I read the news or when I absorb anything online, I like to do clippings. And uh, I was looking over my notes, looking over the things I'd clipped in. You know, sometimes you, you think back to a week and you think, oh, it, it's as if you don't know where the week went. This this was sort of the opposite, where I, I looked at Monday, the notes I took on Monday, and it seemed like such a long time ago. Because, well, well when this happened, I think, what a lot of people did was, A, first they, they, they called loved ones. So, you know, I'm from Izmir, so I, I didn't really have relatives in the region, but I had friends who were from Hatay, specifically. So I reached out to them, asking about their families and their friends. It was one friend I, I couldn't even ask because I was got quite a large family, so I was sort of scary. And uh, things are a blur after that, because the, the parallel to the 99 earthquake was pretty evident, I think, early on. People were just, I think, glued to, to their screens all week long. Like nobody got any work done. So yeah, I think it was, it was quite intense. I think it's only now sort of dropping in intensity. Yeah, that parallel with 1999, the Marmara earthquake, there's been a number of comments about that parallel, what it meant socially, what it meant politically. And obviously the landscape has changed massively since that time, but some of the parallels are really striking indeed. Could you just reflect on that a bit? You know, it's almost 25 years since that happened. 
but there's been a number of uh, observations about the similarities with the political situation and also the economic situation. You know, a lot of people saying what's changed in those 25 years. We know how much has changed politically, but it seems like these kind of tragedies are sadly reoccurring. What do you make of that comparison with 1999? Do you think people make too much of it or do you think it's a salient one? Sometimes I do think people make a little too much of it, specifically relating to Erdogan and the Ak Party, how they came after that. So I think it, that connection can be overdone a little bit sometimes. But it was it was a very important event, obviously. I'm 35 years old. For my generation, earthquake, the word earthquake, I think it's sort of pegged to 99, and certainly for older generations as well. That was the one that, that shook the country the most. I mean, earthquakes do happen from time to time. You know, there was a big one in Bonn recently, uh, a few years ago. There was, you know, my hometown in Izmir, that was one. My cousin had to move out of their, their apartment, him and his wife. So, so they do constantly happen. So people are aware of them. And everybody, certainly people my age, will have experienced them, several of them. But this one, this one, obviously very different. I think I think the phrase, and I'm writing an essay about this. It's the phrase that you remember from '99 is "Where is the state?" And I actually went back and, and rewatched some footage, some TV footage from back then, and so much of it is so similar. You've got no social media, obviously, you know, no cell phones, no nothing. But there's people running around with TV cameras asking people, you know, what do you think is, has happened? And what, what all these people say, where is the state? You know, like, we, we send our people to the military. We, we, we pay our taxes. Why isn't the state here? I haven't been in a disaster zone like that. But that I can understand why that would be maddening to people. Like, why aren't they here? Why, you know, this is supposed to work. Because you're in this really desperate state, these solid buildings have, have collapsed around you. Something monstrous has happened that's not supposed to have happened, and, and uh, the mind just goes in in that direction. And some other things as well, like um, I was watching this footage, and I noticed one of these young people talking about helping was Beza Dostuk. You know, Beza, the sort of showman with the TV I think he was more of a comedian back then in 99. Now he's more of a, a TV talk show host type of person. But he was there on scene and he, I think he was pretty wealthy at the time already and he was trying to help people. And we certainly had a, a, a similar dynamic going now. It's like Osan Oud and Haruk Levat sort of rushing to the scene and, and like famous people tweeting about this and, and, and sort of kind of ostentatiously even, even helping. So there's sort of the collective attention of an entire nation turning into a laser beam that, and, and focusing on this disaster zone, that very much, I think, is the same. One difference politically that strikes me is that uh, at the time, you know, you had a series of, you know, notoriously in the 90s, it was just a series of uh, very unstable coalition governments. And it was uh, one of those at the time that was swept away by the aftermath of that earthquake. The situation politically now is obviously completely different. Couldn't be more different. Oh, it's yeah, it's yeah. a single party that is very much in power. Obviously, they're in alliance with um, smaller nationalist parties, but really it's just a, effectively a one-man show. So that just seems to be one of the, the major differences. So when people are looking at the current earthquake and expecting Erdogan to be similarly swept away in, in the way that the governments of, of 1999 were, seems just to miss the mark a little bit. Yeah, it won't be the same, I think. It won't be the same because back then 
the, the solution seemed to be you have to change the entire political class. And that's what the AK party kind of represented. You need a different class entirely. You need different kinds of people, not just different people, but different kinds of people. Today, yeah, you're right. We're in a very different place. We have hyper stability in terms of politics. You know, this is it's not just one party. It's just like one man that just won't go away. Right? He's, he's sort of unassailable and has been dominating the scene for 20 years. So as far away from, from that, from the sort of rickety coalitions as you can get. But one parallel, another parallel is the cry, where is the state? I mean, they would like for that to have gone away. I think I think the Erdogan government or the regime or whatever you have it, they work very hard to make it so that A, nobody would say that. They try to be on scene as, as quickly as possible and B, to muffle the sound of, of whoever did end up saying that. They did their best to beat 99, I think, because all of them had 99 in their heads. All of them had that cry, you know, the, the where is the state idea in their heads. And they were trying to paint the picture of a, of a powerful state that was on scene, that was very important to them. Obviously, this is Turkey, so everything very quickly gets politicized. But were you surprised at how quickly this latest earthquake was politicized in the aftermath? It seemed within 24 hours almost, there were familiar debates erupting. Were you surprised at how quickly that happened? I'd say it was too surprising. I was. I remember watching Hawk TV and then switching over to Telete Monday morning, sort of seeing you know how people were handling it, how you know how they were talking about it, how the presenters were talking about it, and obviously Hawk TV was not comfortable turning it into political thing right away. So there was this veiled sort of politicization of it, but it was already there. I think Monday morning it was already there, and in Telete. You had the opposite. You had this emphasis on we must now be united, which means any disunion, any voice that doesn't conform to ours is, is suspect or, or treasonous or whatever. So it was already sort of in the undertones early in that morning. And by, by the afternoon, by that night, I think it had already increased. And then the next day, political leaders on both sides made statements. And then I think people sort of let loose. So now we've got these dividing lines that have been drawn up. And on the one side, you've got the critics lamenting low building safety standards, as well as the inadequacies in the relief efforts, the earthquake response in the days afterwards. And then on the other side, you've got the official line that the earthquake was unprecedented in size. They call it, quote, the disaster of the century that by definition, no state could have handled. And also there's in the same line, you know, the fact that, that they're saying that the state is now working at full capacity in response. So two very clear approaches. How do you see that debate playing out? Do you see anyone in the public changing their minds as a result of this debate? Or are we just going to see the classic collective psychological thing of a major event, not really jolting people into a new mindset, but just reinforcing what they already think, what they already believe? I think several things. I think if this has happened, if this had happened like three years ago or four years ago, when the economy wasn't great, but it wasn't awful either, it might have been a, a bit more of a draw. But what ended up happening is that people have been pretty miserable for the past, especially for the past year, if not more, because of inflation, mostly, because of the way the economy has been handled. 
So this comes on top of that. And this is probably not going to make things easier for the economy, right? And B, it seems to me that the emergency response, I mean, I'm pretty sure that they that they probably did better than 99, right? But the earthquake was so vast that it did affect so many people that if you lost a relative, or as many people have now, if you've lost a son or a daughter, you're going through a lot of pain. You're not going to care if if it's fair for you to blame the government. You know, people aren't rational when they vote for Erdogan. They're not going to be rational when they vote against him. Right? If people are miserable, they're less likely to like him. Right? You have to give that misery some sort of meaning. And I don't think I don't see that happening right now. But I think uh, this is this is just going to compound people's misery. So that yeah, more people are going to sort of scooch over to the opposition side. And Erdogan already wasn't polling well, something like 45, 55. And now it's probably going to get worse. Couldn't we imagine another scenario, though, almost a counterintuitive scenario where the earthquakes and the debate around them becomes really the main and even only election issue? And in that way, it might overshadow the economy. So we've had this steady drumbeat for years, really, of the economy tanking, people struggling, inflation rising. And that really setting the political weather. And that has been swept away by this earthquake. And now the debate is going to start from scratch again. And obviously the government has struggled in the earthquake response. But if it gets the kind of rebuilding process right, if it goes 100% in with, you know, the, the media campaign, the messaging campaign that it's going to wage around that issue, you could imagine politically almost there being almost a tabula rasa in terms of the economy being downplayed people forgetting that misery and voting based on the earthquake response which counterintuitively might even help the government can you imagine that kind of scenario just to play devil's advocate i think that's very difficult i think it's very difficult because yes people are gonna care about earthquake response and they're gonna they're gonna want to watch the news about that and they're gonna you know want to see what's going on with their relatives and stuff but at the end of the day, you don't forget when you've got, you know, three kids in school or if you're, you know, if your business is failing, you don't forget those things because of the earthquake on TV. And most people in Turkey, it won't directly affect, right? Then I think you will switch back to things like the economy because that's where you're hurting. That's why, you know, you can't put food on the table. That's, that's a really important issue. And also there's this reality that I don't think it's been discussed too much, but the demographic profile of the provinces that were hit. So there was 10 provinces that were majorly hit in the region. And it's striking that these earthquakes hit these areas that are traditionally very conservative. They've got this heritage of support for the government, their government strongholds, really, you know, Adiyaman, Marash, Antep. It's quite hard to predict how that dynamic will play out, you know, how people on the ground will respond. But that's something that I think people are going to be focused on going forward. You know, how are the local communities there going to going to respond? How are they going to interpret these developments and the official response? Very hard to predict that at this stage, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as you point out, those those provinces really weren't very competitive at all. They were very heavily off-party voting. It is very difficult to predict. I mean, there's, there's all these videos about people amidst the rubble and, and they're saying things like, oh, you know, I, I voted for these guys, but I'm not ever going to vote for them again. This is ridiculous and stuff. But that could be very selective. We don't really know. We don't really know. You know, it would be very, very premature and, and speculative to say, okay, well, politics is going to crack up wide open in those places. I don't think we have to say that. It's just the, the polls were already 
in the opposition's favor at this point. And I was thinking that the Erdogan palace had an interest in sort of spicing up a few international conflicts just to get that rally around the flag effect before the election. That, I thought, was a way they could go into the election season because of what their numbers look like. But now, even, even that's become much more difficult. So where does this leave the construction sector? Obviously, the construction sector has been the locomotive behind the Erdogan government's economic strategy for the past two decades. And that's been reflected in the way that laws have been changed, regulations loosened, and it's created this shared interest between the Turkish government and a number of constituencies. How will this tragedy change that? Because obviously a lot of people are pointing to failures in safety standards, failures in in construction standards, corner cutting as being the main culprit behind the scale of this destruction. So where do you see that debate developing in the coming period? I don't think they have adjusted to that one yet, because the construction sector, as you say, has been so central to who they are, really. If we were to go back 20, 30 years or so, actually before the AK Party, the thing was that it was a huge internal migration in Turkey, rural to urban migration, east to west migration. And there were the, these sort of rings forming around the big cities of shanty towns and, and, and these slums. And Erdogan, having been mayor of Istanbul before, had a lot of experience in this. He had a lot of experience of how to talk to people in the sector, you know, what what, what people in these, in these shanty towns wanted and how to transform that scene. That is something he knew how to do very, very well. So what happened when the AK Party rose to power is very quickly you had a visual change around the country where shanty towns just like transmuted into apartment blocks overnight really over over you know a few months or years and they were also very good at building roads what they did at first is they they didn't build highways most roads in turkey were just sort of one way there and one way back the kind of single file road that you you probably still have in most places but what they did was they they built it's called the dubleo so you have two lanes going somewhere and two lanes back so that you have four lanes overall it's not a highway per se, but, but it facilitates things very much. So those two things really were very important in the Ark Party's early rise. And that's that's how also the, the businessmen around them made a lot of money. And that led to more and more development. And then you had the idea of urban renewal. After 99, obviously, parts of the big cities would be torn down and rebuilt and you know that was supposed to be a safety issue but you know as these things turn in many other countries as well they turn into money making schemes for people close to government and they also turn into sort of gentrification projects so there was a lot of there was a lot of construction going on in those in those 20 years and their initial reaction to the earthquake was well well Erdogan's initial reaction was listen we know how to do this very well i can build all of these buildings back up in a year <laughs> that's basically basically what he said which suggested to me at least that they're not really planning to rethink their approach to the economy or to the political economy and, and their overall approach you know they also something Mustafa Varank said is that he, he was talking about sort of bringing blankets to the to the disaster zone and he said you know Turkey's going to continue to be a country that produces things a 
think something about the way he said it suggested to me that there was more there that, that the growth model that they had pursued, they would continue to pursue. The early statements were very unrepentant in those ways. They seemed to really resist the idea of going back to basics and sort of questioning themselves. There has been this debate that's emerged since the earthquake about the international political angle, the way that a lot of the international aid that's come in has been very warmly received locally. And just today, the Armenian foreign minister visited, spoke at a press conference, met with Chavashorlu. The Greek foreign minister visited a couple of days ago. I think he was the first foreign minister to visit since the earthquake. So you've got a dynamic there where these former foes, particularly Greece in recent years, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Turkey and Greece being on the brink of war over various uh, maritime issues. As you say, it looks less likely now at least in the short term, these two countries are going to come to blows. It looks like there's a cordial relationship or cordial wind that's blowing between them as a result of this earthquake diplomacy. So how do you see that angle developing? You know, do you agree that, that uh, you know, this could, in a similar way to the 1999 Marmara earthquake, actually lead to a, a softening of ties with Greece and other countries, perhaps the West more generally, as a result of this earthquake diplomacy? I don't think so. I don't think that that kind of softening has been expected for a long time now. People always think, you know, around this corner, could it, could it happen around this corner? Could we go back to a little bit into the way things were? I don't think so. I think in terms of optics, they had to return these gestures, right? And, you know, inviting the Greek and Armenian delegations and ministers, that sort of thing, I think was important to show that, you know, we're not a belligerent country. Our, our differences with you are real, but we do appreciate this. We do appreciate the gesture and we are willing to return these kinds of gestures. So in some sense, returning that cordiality is almost a precondition to getting back to belligerence as well. Because if you get back to belligerence straight away, the optics are very bad, right? So you, you have to sort of navigate that shrewdly. And the way that the Erdogan Palace handles that sort of thing is very telling. There will be the, the very popular things they will take for themselves, right? So Erdogan will lead on, or Ivan Kalin will, will make a statement, etc. Or most likely Erdogan will be. But then when it's it's a it's a sort of gesture that is a necessity, it's delegated to the to the foreign minister. The foreign ministry at this point is anyway sort of a very tactical, very very bureaucratic place. It's not very political in nature anyway. There's another thing that I've been thinking about today is how a lot of international coverage that is speculating about Erdogan and his political future as a result of the these earthquakes it started almost immediately. And it's understandable why that's a major thing that comes to mind for those editors. But the speed did seem a bit tasteless from this vantage point. You know, that's the inevitable nature of international coverage. But you can imagine those kinds of reports being weaponized by the government, by Erdogan in an election campaign. You know, they were already picking up on any kind of negative international report to, to present that image of, of Erdogan feeding off this kind of opposition, this international criticism. You know, he's able to use it in a domestic political narrative that presents him as this national leader fighting Turkey's corner. And you can you can see that kicking in again in a coming election campaign. You can see them dragging up these kind of international headlines and saying, look how 
how shocking this international coverage was, profiting off people's suffering to speculate on my political future. You can just imagine how that could easily be weaponized to fit into the political narrative that Erdogan has used for many years now. Yeah, it, there's never any shortage of that. And that seems to be a dynamic that nobody nobody in Turkey, nobody abroad seems to be able to control that Western coverage will inevitably, perhaps disproportionately, be about Erdogan. But then also sort of you can't blame them because this person has created this really fantastical presidency that is supposed to control pretty much everything in the country. It's supposed to. It doesn't manage to, but it's supposed to. So it is a very juicy and interesting thing to watch for international audience, I think. It's also a forerunner of the typical far-right nationalist leaders that you see across the world today. So it's, it's sort of, I think, also uh, the canary in the coal mine, if you will, in that respect. I mean, they're, they're always going to run against the international press. That's just the way it's got to be. I think with this election, what was interesting was that a lot of countries saw a turning point. And a lot of countries that are currently negotiating with Erdogan and with, by extension with Turkey were sort of holding off and not showing their hand, like, you know, on NATO expansion, on the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, all these Western countries were sort of waiting for the election just to see what happened. And then they were going to move. And that was very important for the Erdogan people. They could they could use that to show, okay, you know, these countries think that they would get a better deal with the opposition. These countries, you know, we don't want to say too much, but there are our enemies. So do you want to vote for the, the person who's sort of soft in the enemy's eye, the enemy's eyes? That was the kind of argument they were shaping up to make. And one of those uh, key countries that's actually not been focused on too much, I, I'm a bit surprised actually in the immediate aftermath at least of the earthquake, by the time this episode gets published, maybe things have changed on this front. But Syria, obviously this earthquake terribly affected northwest Syria. It was right there on the border and deaths on both sides. And you could imagine a scenario when, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake of cooperation somehow, but obviously it's an incredibly fragmented situation on the ground. And really that hasn't developed into a narrative yet of this earthquake recovery, earthquake response being adopted into this longer term issue of step-by-step rapprochement between Ankara and Damascus. Doesn't seem like that's happened yet. Would you expect that to happen in the coming weeks and months? How do you see that developing? Yeah, that might happen, I think, because they were looking for ways that they could reconnect with Damascus. You know, I don't I don't think their voters ever cared. Erdogan's voters ever really care about him doing a 180 degrees turn. On this, also, they wouldn't have cared all too much. Sort of having the earthquake be a sort of mediation mechanism and connecting with Damascus through that, that would certainly make sense for them, I think. It would make sense for what they want to do in the region, my understanding is I don't spend a whole lot of time on Syria stuff, but my understanding is they're they're trying to make things more difficult for the Americans being there with the PKK, and then trying to make things perhaps more difficult for the Israelis in southern Syria. So on all those fronts, it might make sense to reconnect with Damascus. And what about this question of going back to the elections? This week, we saw this debate erupt uh, as a result of the statement that was made by Bülent Arinç, former top official, former ally of Erdogan, still an ally of Erdogan. And this statement was basically calling for a delay of the election, possibly until 2024. And this was seen, interpreted as a kind of trial balloon, as uh, the Americans might call it, basically (laughs) testing the waters, testing public opinion 
basically laying the groundwork for a delay in the election based on the destruction in the aftermath of the earthquake. That would be the justification. Obviously, it got a very, very negative response from the opposition. And then things at this stage have died down a bit in that debate. But presumably, it's going to rear up again at some stage. How do you see that debate playing out? Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. I mean, anybody who knows these people knows that Bernard can't make a decision like that on his own. He doesn't have the sort of authority to make a statement like that without it coming as a request from the top. So yeah, they they are sort of floating that idea out and seeing how people sort of position themselves. I think their their hopes might have been that the party might have been a little softer on it, or that they might have said, okay, you know, organizing voting in the affected regions might be difficult. And the, the, the key thing they're trying to figure out, because I think they understand that, you know, they were already in a very weak position electorally, and the earthquake just kills them. So the game for them is right now to postpone the elections, I think, whatever way they can. But they know that if they if they just run roughshod on this and if they if they violate the constitution too badly, then there might be public protests because people have been waiting for this election for a long time. You can violate the law as much as you like in Turkey. You can you can you can do a whole lot of really awful things. If you tangle with the ballot box, then then things get dangerous for any government, including including Erdogan. People do expect to vote, and people do expect it to matter. People do expect it to be done properly. That's the one thing that they haven't been able to change too much. Before we close, just wonder if you've got any other reflections that you'd like to share, really, before before we draw things to a close. You know, are there any other lines that you think have not been sufficiently focused on, appreciated or picked up internationally? Is there anything that particularly comes to mind that we haven't been able to address so far? Well, one idea that I'm currently thinking about and writing about is the idea of solidarity, the idea of how people organize in these kinds of situations, but then also in in different kinds of situations. 99 was also very important in terms of people realizing that the state doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all, that they can have civil society institutions, right? they can have uh, neighborhood institutions, that they can think about urban spaces in, in different ways. And that kind of movement really took off in the 2000s, and in the 2010s it became sort of a resistance movement. It was a very big part, perhaps the core part of the Gezi Park protest. So there are these two different ways of thinking about politics, these two different politics that are coming to a clash more and more. So I think that's that's going to be more and more of a theme. And you see that playing around these professional chambers and professional groups, the Turkish Medical Association, the, the Turkish Chamber of Engineers, and all these people are playing a very important role as they as as people are sort of rediscovering them and, and revaluing them in different ways. So yeah, that's that's the sort of thing that I think is going to be important in the future. That was Selim Koru. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 187. And thanks to you for listening. To reiterate, if you want to donate to a trusted group working on relief efforts after the earthquake, do check out the list of groups that I've added to turkeybooktalk.com. Any support for them would be truly welcome. Once again, thanks for listening and we'll speak again in a couple of weeks.